And welcome to Radio Free Canada. I am your host, as always, Kevin Annett. Welcome back. And uh, we are responding today to a number of requests we've had over the last little while to have a uh, replay of a show, very important show we did back in February. Interview with uh, civil rights veteran Colia Clark out of New York City, a good friend of mine. Uh, Colia was one of the women on the ground who built the civil rights movement. As Colia put it, uh, I wasn't, uh, I didn't join the civil rights struggle. I was born into the struggle. And that really sums up a lot of what we're trying to do on the show, because this is the program for you new listeners who don't know about our history. This show represents the movement that brought to light and to trial genocide in Canada, that exposed international child trafficking and stopped satanic ritual killings, and that forced the resignation of Pope Benedict, Jesuit leader Adolfo Pichon, and top cardinals Bertoni and Brady. All of these people implicated, like the present Pope, in crimes against children and humanity. How did we do it? Well, like Coley Clark, by doing it, by activating people and reclaiming our minds and our lives. What's interesting about the interview with Coley today that you're going to hear in a few minutes is she brings out the fact that, as opposed to the what she calls the mobilization focus, where the TV cameras show up and people march around and have protests, her whole approach and the, the approach of the, their grassroots movement was that, as organizers, they were catalysts. They weren't the leaders. The leaders lay in the community itself. They found those local men and women who were going to take leadership in their community to fight racism, to fight poverty, to fight all these evils that we're all confronting separately. She activated these people, and she describes how she did it. And what I find really interesting about the interview today is this was born out of her life struggle. It wasn't abstract at all. And I find, you know, the people who stay with our program on our movement are those who have been through the fire themselves. It isn't just some other abstract issue. It's reflecting what they go through every day of their life. And so that's the people who we're appealing to on the show and attempting to widen our network all the time. You can follow our work, itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. Also, stand by in September for some very important events. On September 8th in New York City, Friday, September 8th, the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State the ICCCS will be presenting a diplomatic summons and appeal to the United Nations in New York City concerning not just genocide in Canada, but the human trafficking networks that have been documented on the west coast of Canada. The missing Aboriginal women are, in fact, part of a much bigger network of uh, human trafficking and ongoing genocide today. There will be a report and a summons issued about that to the UN at a press conference Friday, September 8th. We'll be covering that and reporting it on the show subsequently the next Sunday. Also in Europe, in uh, you know from last week, there was a new covenant announced by independent congregational Christians who were urging all Christians to break from the established institutional churches, all of whom are implicated with Vatican money, crimes, and, uh, and blood, literally. And this new covenant can be found at itccs.org. It's right, the, the latest posting. That covenant is going to be proclaimed at ceremonies across Europe, and especially in Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther pounding those important theses on the door of, people like to say feces sometimes, but the point is, he threw shit in the face of the Vatican people because of their corruption, and we're going to do it again. Uh, at this attempt by Bergoglio, the present pope, so-called pope, to bring everyone back into the satanic Church of Rome, there's a counter-movement developing in the other direction, and we're, rep we're covering that, and we're a part of that new covenant. So you can find that at itccs.org. These are some of the uh, upcoming events. And um, 
it's very interesting, too, because the more we do this work, the more we hear from people all over the world who basically have been doing this, this work in a very unannounced and uh, unassuming way. I just got a call uh, this last week from somebody in Germany who works with the Romani people. Of course, these uh, the uh, so-called gypsies in Europe were being targeted for uh, extermination for, for a long time. And his work now is dovetailing with the common law court being established in Belgrade to look into the Vatican-led Croatian genocide of the Serbs, the Jews, and the Romani people during the 1930s and 40s. Over a million people slaughtered with Vatican money, direct orders from the Pope out of Rome. So it's interesting, these people hear our work, they come forward, and we're joining hands across borders, which is what it's all about. Our work, uh, again, I mentioned itccs.org, but follow our six most recent books. Just go to Amazon.com, put in the name Kevin Annett, A-N-N-E-T-T. You'll see all of these books, especially Murder by Decree and these other crimes. Follow at MurderByDecree.com, and you'll see a lot of the hard evidence that we're talking about. Uh, write to the show, Republic of Kanata at gmail.com, that's K-A-N-A-T-A. It means our village. The original uh, term before it became bastardized into the word Canada, which of course represents the British Empire, we're not into that, we're into returning self-government to the people. And that's in fact what Coley and I are going to talk about today in our interview from last February. So in closing, remember, self-governance is not something taught to us any more than personal, political, or spiritual governance is we only acquire these things through practice and the hard lessons acquired therein. And that's kind of one of the main themes of, of today and our ongoing program. So uh, we will be back again live next week, as always. I hope you enjoyed, I know you'll enjoy today's show. And it's especially relevant considering the race riots and attacks going on in Virginia this last week. Three people have been killed where uh, neo-Nazi groups attacked uh, civil rights march. and um, it's it's just very indicative. Uh, we think that this was uh, very the main reason that we feel it's important to play Coley's show again today to show that this is a long term struggle. It, nothing is ever really fixed. The storm clouds keep appearing all the time, and we have to always stay vigilant, brothers and sisters. So, until next week, we hope you enjoy the show. Write to us if you have any comments or, or desiring to form shows of your own and broadcast it here on BBS Radio. Radio Free Canada, every Sunday, 3 p.m. Pacific. So in, until next week, stay strong, stay clear. Here's the program. Thank you. Free Kanata, the show where we don't let nobody turn us around. This is your host, Kevin Annett. It's February 5th, and that's in honor of our guest today, Claudia Clark, a veteran of the civil rights movement, one of those young women on the ground who led the fight long before Martin Luther King and the TV cameras showed up. It's an honor to know Claudia. Uh, she's my friend and sister, and we're going to have her on in a few minutes. Um, and before that, I wanted to make a few announcements. If you're following this, you might have seen on our site, itccs.org, that we are initiating this month two new blog radio programs in the common law. The first being, based out of England, 
Radio Free Anglia. Now, you can see these notices at the itccs.org website. We just put them up there now, so you can see the details of how you access these shows. Radio Free Anglia reaches a predominantly English, Scottish, Welsh, and Irish audience. It's going to be heard every Sunday, so same day as this show, but at 11 a.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Greenwich time in England. And the link is right up on the, on the website there, itccs.org. And for the American listeners, on February 25th, we are commencing a show called Common Sense, an American-based program on the common law and how to fight back. It's going to be Saturdays at 12 noon Pacific time, and there'll be more details forthcoming there. Now, this is our way of linking hands across the borders, the imaginary borders, and across the water from the home of the common law in England and into those countries where the common law has that history and is still a weapon in the hands of the people to reclaim our nations and ourselves. So tune into those shows, spread the word, and go to the website to find out more. Also, I want to thank the, the bunch of emails that have come in this week, and there's a few requests to read comments over the air, and if we have time later, we'll do that. If not this week, then next week for sure. Several of them from listeners in Ontario. And uh, for a, a, to flag for uh, members of the Republic and common law activists in eastern Ontario, there is a new uh, gathering occurring among our supporters there in the area between Toronto and Ottawa, and actually extending all the way to Montreal. In eastern Ontario, there will be a whole series of new meetings happening. And uh, if you'd like to be part of that, just write to us, republicofcanata at gmail.com. You can also check out a new website about that, some of the work where we're trying to create new community services on the ground to protect children, to arm people with the common law, to elect our own community-based sheriffs and direct action units to stop these criminals in power. Now, that website is Holistic Us International. That's Holistic, and then U.S., Holistic Us International, dot webs, W-E-B-S dot com. You can read more on there. And like I say, contact us if you'd like to be part of that. Also, um, I have a request from America, kind of an urgent action request, and it's fitting that this uh, happened today and now that we've got Colleen on with us. Um, and I'll just read it. it. I'm writing to you on behalf of Ronnie Davis, a Native American man who's been incarcerated on false charges since November in the Polk County, Florida jail. He's asked us to contact you to see if you're able to help him. He's Cherokee, Cheyenne, and Sioux. He's been teaching law, the common law, to help people get their children back from a cash, kids-for-cash trafficking ring here in Florida with the so-called Child Protection Services. He never charged anyone a cent for his help and did nothing but teach parents their constitutional rights and how to handle CPS when they come to, for their children. By doing this, Mr. Davis was taking money from the people running this operation, who, which brought on a retaliation, and the county sheriff's department has have trumped up charges against him. He's been in jail without charge for over a week now. And if you'd like to help out, uh, write to us, republicofcanata at gmail.com. We'll put you in touch with Ronnie Davis. He's presently incarcerated in the Polk County Jail. And uh, you can also leave a message for him um, at this number, 863 635 6920. That's 863-635-6920. That's the number for the jail's office. Let them know that we are watching their actions, that we are standing by our brother Ronnie Davis, an incarcerated common law activist. And I've also got another email from Irvine, California, a woman who has been held without charge for two weeks in solitary confinement simply because she wouldn't move off a bench. She was a homeless woman and um, 
again, this is this, the, the kind of police state that we're fighting against all the time. Not allowed to see a magistrate, not allowed to see the charges against them, basically put in a for-profit prison where the rule of law does not operate. Again, her name is Roxy Lamb. If you'd like to be in char- touch with her to help her, just write to us, Kanata at gmail.com. I'm going to wait for my trusty colleague here, Don, to let me know. Uh, oh, Kali is with us. So without further ado, I want to get right to our sister, Kali. Kali, can you hear me? I can hear you very, very clearly, Kev. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you, sister? How's it going? Oh, man, I tell you, it's been a long day, but it's been a fruitful day, so it's going well. Well, you know, I've been really plugging you with everyone I know, and today's it's just a delight to be back with you. You know, I know we've done TV interviews on uh, MNN TV in New York City, but um, folks may not know a lot about you. I wondered if you could just take a little bit of time to say who you are, what your background is, how you got into the struggle. Well, I come out of the state of Mississippi. Let's start with that. That puts you in the struggle the time you're born, mm-hmm. especially now in which I came into the world in the 1940s. So Mississippi is home. Um, I grew up in a state of oppression. It was literally a state of oppression. Um, that people talk about now as if it was 100 years ago, but actually it's not that far back. And as the clock turns these days, we are entering a phase of history that I'm very familiar with, and that is the racist and sexual and ugly violence that marked my early years. I started out in a family, though, that was a resistance-oriented family, uh, so I grew up with a with a family that that talked about never bending to evil, and that's yeah. you know that's that that's really literally my beginning. I grew up in a family that was multicultural in the sense that we were primarily Africans who came in during the enslavement era, but we were also married to the indigenous populations of the state, and of course there's always the rape that came from the European side. So I grew up in kind of this multicultural environment in a very unique area of Mississippi, actually, because the area that I grew up in uh, was the Europeans and the Germans, and more Germans would come with time and when the wars would come, when the war, World War II came. But there were the Germans, and there was the British, and there was the, the Dutch, and there was the Scot. Very few Irish, there were Jews, very few, very, very few. But there were a lot of um, Iranians and Arabs and, and these other groups that were in the area. I'm still not clear why. Uh, so that's, that, that kind of a growing up in that kind of a cultural milieu creates for you a unique way of looking at the world. Yeah. So I got a chance to see the world rather than just uh, the European uh, conceptualization that before me. I got a chance to see the rest of the world as well. Right. Um, I grew up in a large family these days. In my day, 10 children in a household was considered a medium family, an average, right. an average family. <laughs> so I had an uncle with 21, one with 17, and an aunt with 14, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we well, were, we were that, considered the small family. But a hard I grew family up in a family of men. I had eight yeah. brothers yeah. and a sister, of course. Of, like most folk in my time period, it was a male-headed household, as were most families in areas in which I grew up. In fact, in the nation, probably, they tell a lie about it being different, but it wasn't. Um, so I grew up very healthily in one sense, yeah. but I grew up in a poor family. So we were itinerant cotton pickers in the late summer, early fall. We would go to the Mississippi Delta. So I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, which is central Mississippi. But we went to the Delta 
every fall to pick cotton would be up there. I got a chance to see another world that I had not seen before. And this was intense oppression. I mean, really intense. In fact, the houses that we lived in as cotton-picking families were more often than not regular homes for the for the black residents who was moved out so that we would have a place to stay to pick the planter's cotton. And then we would return back to Jackson, and these poor people who had spent a whole summer and were well, part of the summer and, and all of the fall without access to any real income unless they came to pick cotton. And if they did, it was uh, far less than what we were paid to pick the cotton. But you can see the pitching of two groups against each other, the so-called yeah. hill Negroes against the bottom, which is the Delta Negroes. Yeah. Uh, that was a very clear issue. But I also picked the, it was the fortune of being able to see the other America that nobody talks about, and that is poor white America. Mm-hmm. Because often they were in the fields with us picking cotton side by side with nothing, and I mean literally nothing. And, you know, it's just a, it's a time of great poverty. But because my parents organized so well, and because we were always landed from the Africans who came out of slavery, and my father's father was a slave, had been a slave, um, they bought land immediately after slavery ended at 50 cents, 75 cents, a dollar an acre, and accumulated quite a bit of it, actually. So I grew up in this landed family, but despite that, uh, the common of mechanization meant that they did not have the equipment to farm the land with. It became very, very expensive. And, of course, uh, the federal government, uh, through uh, the Department of Agriculture, would not provide blacks with loans. Right. So we didn't have access to loans. So we left the land and came to Jackson. But that is the way I grew up. That is the world right. in which I grew up, colored school and all. Um, and if I had to do it all over again, I would take the separation, I, because it was a wonderful uh, social and cultural experience growing up in, a, in, in these very huge communities without class. There was no yeah. class. Everybody in it, because we were the colored people or the Negro people, everybody in it uh, had the same uh, class status, even if you right. had lots of lots of money and you were a millionaire, you had the same status. Mm-hmm. as other Africans living with you in, in, in within the community. Uh, the sad part about it is that the indigenous populations were totally oppressed. Uh, we would see them sometimes that would walk through the streets, um, and they were separated from, from those the, the mixed groups of indigenous. So my family right. and my mother's people are all the mixed groups, but there's a huge separation between the two. Um, who, are they, Colleen, who are the indigenous? What groups the indigenous were Choctaw, yeah. Chickasaw, Cherokee, um, Blackfoot, I think it is, Natchez. Um, let's see, all these groups, Natchez, oh, 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 man, man, no, 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 forgetting all my indigenous groups. It's a yeah. whole battery of, of indigenous yeah. populations. Right. Um, my mother had a piece that she would sing uh, to the Creek Nation. She would sing this piece, you know, Choctaw Nation, Creek Nation's going to shine the night, shine the night, shine by the light of the moon. When the sun goes down and the moon comes up, Creek Nation going to shine. <laughs> so the creek were there. So there's right. loads of them. And then there were mixtures of Maya and other groups that were coming in from Mexico, along with what we call Mexicans today. Right. Uh, all these populations. East Indians, of course, were a small part of the community. Tell me, uh, Carly, how did you take the step to be involved in the civil rights movement? How did that happen for you? I was born in it. 
my grandfather and father brought my father into the farm labor movement. Even though they did not live in counties that housed farm labor movements, they would go. There was people were so bent on change, and I guess some of the populism from the 1890s, early 1900s, mm-hmm. also flowed over into the 20th century. They were hell bent on going to to the next door to the to the neighboring counties to struggle with those folk around the issues of of farm labor and organizing farm labor. Right. It was a huge movement, and my father was a part of that along with, well, my mother's father and mother's grandfather. So I grew up with a spirit of knowing that we had to, one, change the popular voting system. So we were told that, you know, you had to grow up, you pay your poll tax, and we were required to pay a poll tax, had to be paid on time, and that uh, that would give you entry into being able to demand the right to vote. So both my mother and father was registered voters. So I was born in this space where I was told that I had to fight. In fact, I was required to fight. My father worked, and my mother actually helped to organize. The community helped to organize us, and it was a demand on us that we be a part of the struggle. So when the civil rights movement of the 60s came, I was already a part of it. I mean, it was nothing new for me. I knew that I had a job to do, so I came in and went to college in 59, the fall of 59, and we formed the first NACP chapter on campus. That did not come from me, actually. The brothers who were coming home from the Korean War, the older students, were interested in forming this first college chapter for the state of Mississippi. And as we prepared in 59, 60 came real quick. Because <laughs> yeah. that was September, and it's February 1 of 60s when the four young people in North Carolina will take a seat at the lunch counter and change the way in which we looked at the world in the South because it would be caught up in this massive first sit-in movement. Sit-in movement would be followed by uh, just mass mobilizations of all sorts across the South. And that meant that people were going to sit in at libraries and lunch counters and wade in into the in the waters and everything else. Uh, so that is uh, the movement that I entered, but I didn't right. enter it, uh, other words, new. No. It was not new. I became well, a special assistant to the lead man for NHP for the state of Mississippi, Medgar Wiley Evers. Okay. And you knew. You worked with Medgar, did you? Yeah, I was a special assistant for the state. And a really um, powerful, brilliant man. And he taught me other, you know, techniques for organizing and uh, another way also of looking at the world. I got a chance to look at the world through the emerging nationalist movement because Medgar really believed uh, in the Kenyan approach from Jomo Kenyatta out of um, Kenya, that you had to fight for what you got and you had to pay any price to do it. Now, do you think so, that's why uh, Medgar was killed? One of the reasons? There's no question in my mind that Medgar Wiley Evers was killed because unlike all of the other civil rights leaders... Medgar Wiley Evers was one committed to a state, and he didn't try to be committed to the whole region. He committed himself to the state of Mississippi. He was committed to organizing from the ground up, maids and 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 and, and whoever else was around, and lawn workers or whoever. He was committed to organizing from the bottom up, and he did that. But he organized the state, and that state um, to, to this day has more elected officials than any other state in the South, and yet, when not just any other state in the South, any other state in the nation, 
In fact, Mississippi has more elected officials than all of the states combined. If you combine the, the, the elected officials across the U.S., you won't have the elected officials that you get out of the state of Mississippi, black elected officials. So- Colley, this is really important because, you know, I never knew that about Medgar Evers. And, uh, you know, in other words, he was at, he was working for self-government. He wasn't looking oh, yeah. to, the, to, the, to the authorities. He was empowering people on the ground. Yeah, you got to be empowered on the ground. If not, you don't have a base. You've yep. got to develop a base. And that base cannot be a fly-by-night base. In other words, you cannot uh, mobilize folk for the sake of mobilization. There comes a time when you may need to mobilize. But you mobilize from a well-grounded, well-organized base. Yep. Otherwise, you have nothing to come home to, and anything can run in and run out. So if we look at the major movements, the mobilizing movements, we looked at uh, America's Georgia, if you look at Birmingham, Alabama, uh, you begin to look around the nation at these movements, they leave nothing behind. Right. People come in, they mobilize for a moment, and then they disappear, and you have nothing. Well, you the media all up. over again, and that's very difficult to do. Once yeah. the people have come through a mobilizing experience and, and it kind of falls flat in your face, it is very difficult then to come back to those same people and say, well, you know, we've got to pick up and organize this. Well, you know, the so, official but, version, you know, the, how the media would come in and Martin Luther King would show up and they'd all be focused on him and then he'd leave. Did you find kind of a conflict there? Uh, was well, there, it was more you, than a we, conflict, and that was yeah. a conflict with Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was very much like Medgar's organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, the conflict was that they were, we, we were committed with SNCC to organizing a base. That meant that you organize a new leadership. Whose right. leadership? Not our leadership. We were catalysts. You organize the local leadership. So you got the Fannie Lou Hamers the Victoria Grays, and all of these other wonderful people on the ground and people who were already there organized because unions had already come through with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And so many yeah. of the people that we worked with were already organized and organized in because they had been trained by these outsiders uh, with yeah. the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. That's also true for some of the postal workers and where there are a few places in the state where there was blacks who were connected to postal workers. So Amsterdam Moore out of the Mississippi Delta was already organizing because he had been well-trained. So what we have happening is is that you have, as an organizer, you're going to produce the, the leadership, the natural leadership, the earthbound leadership of a people, and they become the leaders. We will take some of the pain that's required to build that. In other words, some of the beatings and the shootings at and whatever else happens and the going to jail will be by the catalytic agents who were there, and we were the catalytic agents. So you've got to organize from the ground up. You've got to have the people right. themselves represent the people themselves so that you have a natural base, and therefore you can have a living movement, and it will live on. Right. Well, you're showing so well how one movement feeds into another. This is like a real organic thing. It wasn't just uh, brought in by people from the outside or by any means. But, uh, oh, no, 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 yeah. by no means. And it, it wasn't new. No. Uh, if anybody that takes a, cl- a close look at what happened, especially in Mississippi, which was the wealthiest, in one sense, the wealthiest, cotton state, and because we had long stick cotton, and so Mississippi got to be very popular in that just region and so on and so forth. But when this trick called Indian slavery came, and it was a trick, mm-hmm. because it really was a public industrial capitalist needed to expand their base. And yep. to expand that base, they had to get rid of the old South. It had to yep. die. So 
So and they just uh, make it legal to be slaves inside American prisons, which is 13th oh, Amendment. Oh, not just prisons. You would yep. really a slave on the land, because remember now, when you are a slave, but I would say this, when you are a slave, they feed you, they house you, they clothe you. It may be inadequate and insufficient, but you don't provide that. Mm-hmm. But if I tell you you're free and you had nothing, I mean, you literally had only what you had on your back. You had no land. You had no access to resources for your children. You had nothing. We came out of slavery with nothing, and nobody tells that story. We had no. nothing but what was on our backs. Yep. Now what do you do? You go back right. to the plantation and beg missus to let you back on. Yeah. That is mm. what you do. In the meanwhile, through the Freedmen's Bureau, they're rounding up all these black children in the name of uh, that they were that, that the kids were left abandoned. They also rounded up tens of thousands of white children in the name of abandonment. What do they do with them? They take them to missus and the plantation, and they tell you the lie that missus is going to educate them. So missus has got what? Free labor. Right. Slavery is over. Yep. You are now trying to find some way of taking care of yourself, and if you got, if you've been able to reassemble a family, or you had a family, you've now got to figure out how you're going to feed and help your family. So it's black males who go out and make contracts. They can't read. All right. right. Somebody says you to show up here on X, X day, and you better not be late. Let's say it's the fifteenth of January that you have to show at Mr. Jolie's place to do whatever he wants you yeah. you to do for that date. But it happens to be a cold spirit, so the period to hit. You have nothing. You have no. You don't have shoes. You got to wrap yourself with whatever you can wrap your feet with. You mm-hmm. can't make it there. The water is high because it's flooded and it's cold and it's icy. So you get there five days late. Yeah. And the sheriff is waiting on you. You're going to jail. Yeah. For violation of contract. Now you work for Mr. Jolie for thirty days for free. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is literally the way it happened. This is not. This, yeah, is, yeah. this, this is this is not a lie. This is not a game. This is actually what happens. It's all planned. You have no, well, nothing. They can't plan Mother Nature, but they no. understand it's winter season. Yeah. They understand that you don't have anything. So now these black males are pulled into a pyramid system. Well, that much, that explains why there was this huge earthquake building. And uh, I, I want to get back to the movement. What you what you saw on the ground. Tell us some anecdotes. What was it like organizing? Tell us about some of these people like Fannie Lou Hammer and the others. Well, let's, let's do Fannie Lou because I think she's one of the most beautiful women that I've ever met. I got a phone call. Of, I was down in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where we've been organizing uh, Forest County. And that Hattiesburg is in Forest County, which is south of Jackson, about 80 miles. Um, and we were down there organizing because for the first time a federal tribunal were meeting, was meeting in the state of Mississippi uh, for the first time in, since, since the end of Reconstruction. And so we were down there organizing against a registrar who had refused to even register blacks with Phi Beta Kappa degrees. And it's always saying they couldn't pass the literacy test. So because this was a unique experience, and the government had looked at it, all these people who were well-educated, PhDs and others, um, and they couldn't get registered to vote. So we've been down there organizing uh, that county to make sure that there was a presence for this federal tribunal that was meeting in Mississippi for the first time in, 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 since Reconstruction. I got a call that we were, it was early September, that we were to come to the Mississippi Delta 
And so, uh, no, no, this is still, this is, no, this is August. Come to Mississippi Delta. So we head for the Delta for a little town called Ruleville, Mississippi. Well, we had headquarters at, up at, uh, in Bolivar County, um, at Cleveland, Mississippi. But we would be next door this time in Indianola, Mississippi. And I don't know whether you've heard it since the James O. Eastland. Oh, yeah. Well, this is our James O. Eastland. This is the man who's screaming the Yellow Plague. Uh, but also the man who was helping to organize um, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, which was designed to spy on us, keep up with us, and also to spread as much madness as possible through black agents. He owned a big plantation too, didn't he, that senator? Oh, huge plantation. That was that. that but this is a his county is a county that houses parchment, and an argument could be made that Eastland owned parchment. This <laughs> is the hmm. state's biggest. State prison for the state of Mississippi. Right. <laughs> Known for its ruthlessness and, and violence. So is that uh, where you met? Uh, is that where you met Fannie Lou? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to Fannie Lou now. I got to get you there. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get me there. I'm coming. <laughs> so we drive this uh, through Jackson all the way up into the Delta to this little small town, and we pick up Dory Latin on the way out of Tugalu College. We were the two females. Uh, state workers for the Student Abound Coordinating Committee. So we pick her up on the way, and we all we arrive up in this little small town and uh, sit in there in a little small church house. Uh, is about, I'd say, 30 people. Uh, but surrounding them, going around and around, a four block, like a four-block square area of cotton fields, is uh, one, the brother to one of the men that had killed uh, Emmett Till, He's a police officer for the. He's one of the two police officers for the town. The other person is a, is a mayor who is a mayor and sheriff and everything else for the town. He has his big dog and a shotgun, and they're driving around and around this little church house. And we come into this minister who is trying to be brave. You can see this minister is trying to be brave, but we could hear these people singing. And um, as we get in, we see this small group sitting up in front, about I'd say thirty people in all spread out across a small church that might have held 100, 120 people. And our job is to keep them in their seats because we're going to take these people to Indianola, Mississippi, James O. Eastland's uh, uh, headquarters for, <laughs> for, the, for, for this county to get yeah. them registered to vote. And this, 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 this the three of them are just singing. And so uh, we have to preach them, keep them in the seat. The bus was late. Two hours late at that, because we had struggled getting it from Bolivar County into Sunflower County and to where we were, which was typical and normal. We always knew that they had roadblocks and everything else to block our, our movement. But I watched this one woman who just seemed to be a firebrand of her own, and they were singing this song, uh, hear a little, when I feel a little light of burning, hear a little wheel of turning, just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. <laughs> So this just a little talk with Jesus. We get on the bus with him. We get him down to Indianola, and we wait all day, and there's no sign of a registrar. The town is located in a little square. We had this, 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 this county seat for the county. It's located in a little square in Indianola. And Indianola, for those who are listening, who know anything about the blues, this is the home of B.B. King, 
and, and, and many of the other great blues musicians really? that we have for the state. Wow. So, so we're down here in blues territory. Yeah, yeah. And a blues musician in sight. There's no black folk in sight. Black folk are men making sure they stay, they stay out of our way and away from, obviously, what is now very negative white power. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, around 4 o'clock, we noticed that these people all got these newspapers. And that one little bench and right in front of the little courthouse. So one person is sitting there, one white man, with his little newspaper, and keeps looking at the newspaper and looking up at us. And of them was on, at once, the little courthouse had two stories. And it's the only two-story building, the only, tallest thing in miles. <laughs> so on top of there is a man standing up looking down on us. He's got a newspaper. So Dora, who I always said, told Dora, I said, Dora, you ain't so bright. Dora decided to take the man's newspaper that was sitting in front. He said, give me this paper. <laughs> so she takes this newspaper from this gentleman. And he sat there. He was just, just like we were superstars, right? He sat there. He didn't say a word. He was, I mean, and then when we said, well, what is this? He just didn't try to explain. But um, it had front pages that the communists had taken over. And we were all communists. <laughs> and it had the pictures of Bob Moses and Fannie Lou Hamer, not Fannie Lou Hamer, but Ella Baker and Ann and Carl Braden, who had been out of Kentucky, uh, known for their struggles uh, around, they were communists out of, out, of, out of Kentucky, but they were known for their struggles around organizing blacks in the South. So these people are all on the front page, along with Diane and Jim Bevel, who we knew quite well, and Jack O'Dell, who I will later marry, uh, they were all on the front page. And they were, you know, just communists taking over the South. So we got to get out of here. We look up. Indianola has three highways that converge, 61, 49, and 51. And as we look up, we can see nothing but men in white. They didn't put the cops in blue. They were in white. Highway patrol. Uh, we look to our left, highway patrol. We look to our right, highway patrol. All three highways are loaded with highway patrol. So we have to try to get out, and we did try to get out, and this is when I bring you back to Fannie Lou. We were given the task that Bob Moses always protected his female workers, and we just had two. <laughs> so he put Dorian out of the car with James Bevel and said, y'all get back to Ruleville and let the people know that we have been surrounded down here. Somehow you got to get the hell out of here. Let the people know we've been surrounded and what's happening. And, and, and yet then they began to spread the word throughout the county all that we have been overwhelmed here at the Indianola. So we do. They let us through. But as we got through and began to look back, we saw that they had surrounded the bus that was trying to get out. And Fanny New Hamer's on this bus. So Bevel, who was was had a lot of illness near the end of his life, was one of the most powerful organizers I know, James Bevel. Mm -hmm. He said, we're going back. So we went back. And sure enough, they let us pull all the way up on the shoulders of the road, didn't stop us, and Bevel was screaming, you know, why you have the bus? Why you have the bus? And one of the highway patrolmen turned to him and said, well, the bus is under arrest. He said, I'm not asking you about the bus. What happened about the people on the bus? They belong to the bus. So he says, well, why is the bus under arrest? It's the wrong color. <laughs> didn't know you could put a bus under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> the bus and all this property was under arrest. Everybody was frightened. I tell you, it was a frightening moment. But then that same woman who we heard this morning, had heard it early in the morning, lit out with a new song, and she was singing, I'm going through. I'll take the way to freedom, no matter what others do. I will pay the price 
and it was Fannie Lou Hamer. That evening, later on, they, they kept the bus and they kept everything on the bus, <laughs> all the people on the bus. Yeah. Dora and I went on back with Bevel dropped us back in Ruville, and we you know, went around knocking on the few little doors there was. It wasn't it was a very small area. Letting the people know that the bus had been captured and that, you know, we needed to get together a mass meeting for the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, we didn't pull off the mass meeting. The bus was set free. And Fannie Lou uh, shows up in, 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 in darkness and then walking with one of the male friends from SNCC when all of a sudden I heard this woman calling my name. And I knew that whoever was calling didn't know, had been looking at some paper and was trying to do the pronunciation, which was inaccurate. Calling me Miss Lytle, Miss Lytle, when I'm Liddell. So uh, oh, yeah. that's Scottish Liddell and not Lytle. Scottish, yeah. Yeah. And so um, it was Fannie Lou Hamer, and she was crying. You could see in this little light rain, you could see the tears running down, just a tear line around, running from my eyes. And she was worried about her husband. She said they, 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 they called her the name of the plantation owner. You know, he said, put me off, put me off. But, but Pap, he's still out there. Pap, he's still out there. He won't come. He wouldn't come. But so she then explained to us that, uh, in her words, uh, they wanted her to take her registry back. Remember, she's she's got the broken English here, so she said, take my take my register back. And she looked and she said, "But I ain't gonna take my register back. I ain't taking it back. I waited forty-two years for this moment. I ain't turning back now." <laughs> so that was the beginning for Fannie Lou. That very evening, everybody yep. came in from. Bolivar County from our main office with Bob Moses and everybody gathered, but Dory and I, we were not allowed in this session. They used to put the Mississippians, we had to stand outside. (laughs) So these northerners uh, got fair loot. Um, But um, that same evening, there were shots fired. They thought that Dory and I were these three young girls who were actually in the house that we were destined to have stayed in, but we didn't. So these girls were all shot. They, They lived but Dora and I escaped because we had already been on our way back to Jackson. So that is a meeting of the, 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 the one day with all of this, as quickly as I can give it to you, um, yep. Fannie Lou Hamer, a dynamic woman, because this woman will now uh, organize the counties, not just one county, but the surrounding counties. We'd be at Cleveland, Mississippi, which is the county next door, adjacent to uh, Sunflower County, Eastlands County. And she would show up, because this is where the headquarters house was at Amgen Moe's home. And she would show up, and oftentimes the FBI would always come in pretending that they were looking out for us, of course. Yeah. And they'd sit around and play chess with Diane, or sit around and talk while they spied us out, <laughs> as if we'd be yeah, stupid yeah, enough yeah. not to know the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they were sitting there this day, and these papers were coming out every day calling us communists. But they would come out for two whole weeks. But this day would be the last day. Fannie Lou Hammer came in in a normal, jovial way. Morning, everybody. Morning, everybody. Y'all, oh, I'm just so thrilled, so happy. I'm a communist. And somebody said, what the fuck do you know? I'm not a communist. <laughs> she said, yeah, but I'm a communist. I'm a communist. <laughs> and the FBI sitting there, they're just red as a beast. <laughs> the people who are running this newspaper are the Hederman brothers. Very close bosom buddies of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Well, that afternoon, there was no more communism. No more newspaper. Well, it's funny, you know, wasn't Fannie Lou, and and I don't know if you were involved in the Freedom Democratic Party, but she led that fight at the convention, Democratic Convention, in 1964. Well, there's no question about it. She would need to fight. I just wanted to get you the the touch of her her beginning here with us. 
She'd already been involved though with Skip years ago, not Skip, but with the uh, with the school up in Knoxville. Yeah. Um, years ago, back she'd been doing work. Uh, yeah. She'd been trying to get herself trained, and so we just kind of you know she reemerges with SNCC, with Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. On oh, the Highland Center. She worked at the yeah the Highland the Center, Highland, Highland Center, Folk yeah. Center there in yeah, Knoxville. Center, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she had been connected with that for years, for years, mm-hmm. on and off, doing training and this and that. So this was for her an absolute opportunity to be able right. to to live out that life. She said she waited forty-two years for that moment. Yeah, she wasn't turning back. Now. She made every word of it because she would pick up here, begin to organize everything that she could find. Now I was out of Mississippi as of the fall of '62, but yeah. Fannie Lou will continue her work, and Dory really can talk a bit at length about having had a more involved experience with Fannie Lou. But she would not only continue the work, she would get involved with the creation of the Freedom Democratic Party, an idea shot forth by Charlie Cobbs, who was one of the original 16, because there were 16 of us, two females and, and 14 males, uh, operating under Bob Moses. David Dennis would come in from New Orleans. We had Bob Moses. Bevel was assigned, he and his wife, because Diane got pregnant, they, they had to go to Dr. King's group. But we we operated under their leadership, and um, Ben Lou was... The, the highlight. She became like I should say the right. spotlight for the revolutionary struggle. But she wasn't alone. There were Victoria Gray, who will come from well, Southern Mississippi. There will be Annie Devine, who will come from Canton, Mississippi, where Black Power will be born, uh, right outside of Canton, on the road outside of Canton, uh, outside of Canton, um, yeah. five years or well, four years later. Well, well you know, three women pro- will be the women at the National Democratic Convention in uh, New Jersey at Atlantic City. Yeah, I wanted to ask you to explain that to people who don't know the history. I mean, they were trying to desegregate the Democratic delegation. Is that right? Well, they wanted to remove the Democratic. The Freedom Democratic Party was organized to unseat the Mississippi Democrats. Right. The argument was, you know, the racism, the -hmm. refusal to allow blacks not only the right to vote, but to participate in any way in the voting process. So they came here to ask that they... Uh, take their seats. Right. And Lyndon Johnson tried to block this moment. Yeah. And he didn't get to the press fast enough, so Fannie Lou was able to tell the story at Atlantic City, at this right. um, uh, Democratic National Convention. And the story got out to all humanity, being told by her how she had suffered, what she went through in Mississippi, the serious beating that she had taken in Mississippi, uh that got out, and Johnson couldn't block it. He was very upset. So what right. the Democratic Party did, trying to play games with people, they didn't understand these people as sophisticated as they were, what they decided to do was um, they would give the Freedom Democratic Party a special set of seats. They'd get two seats, right? Yeah. They'll give you two delegates. You can sit over here. Well, the party said, oh, we're not taking that. No, 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 sir. We won't and they probably got seated in 68, did they? Oh, uh, yeah, 68, it worked out, not as Freedom Democrats, no, it's 68, they yeah. pushed out the uh, the other, the Southern Democrats, called the Dixocrats, they were pushed out for a moment, right. but um, by 68, you know, we've got a Voting Rights Act. Right. You know, and I can see... Nobody gets paid, you sell my film, if you see the sell my film, folks, of course, that's a project organized by my first husband and I and, and some other folks, but um, that film does not include 1964. It doesn't include this fight at the Democratic National Convention. Right. 
because it's, it's an old attempt. To, a revisionist history piece to not present the history of that of the freedom struggle as it really uh, grows and evolves, uh, uh, and where we t- where it took us to. And you know, today it has such relevance. You know. Coley, I can see we're going to run out of time today. I want you to come back next week and carry this on. As much as you need, I want to talk to Canada. Yeah. I'm excited, and you know I want to hear about Canada, and I, and I know you got Katie there. I know I want to hear about the Algonquin, the Mohawk, and everybody else that's up there fighting against uh, the evils of Canada. I understand that we are, we're twins. We're twin powers here. <laughs> well, you know, I often say, Coley, Canada's a lot more dangerous because uh, everything's hidden up here, you know. Uh, the racism yeah. is hidden. It's right beneath the surface, but uh, it's just as vicious. There's many Native people died up here as down south and more. Wow. So, you know, and we've talked about that on the air, you know. We have talked about it, and I, I do understand from looking at it through the African experience, especially during the enslavement era when Canada got seen as the great state of freedom when blacks were coming from the south and being able to cross into Canada because it had a little quirk law that said if you entered free, you remain free. Right. Which Canada is a slave state. Canada had slaves, both black slaves right, and slave state. Aboriginal That's slaves. That's correct. The city of Halifax, Montreal, was built off slave labor. Yes, yeah. but also the use of those Africans who crossed in, yeah. uh, in the name of freedom, they were also uh, working for little of nothing, yeah. along with many, many whites. Now, I want you to touch on briefly, we've got about 10 minutes left, and then we're going to have you back next week to talk about today and the struggles you're involved with today. You've run for uh, the U.S. Senate. Uh, you're a uh, dynamic activist on the ground, and uh, I want you to talk about that. But tell us a little bit about how you're seeing things these days with the, uh, the, the present climate and the struggles going on in America. Well, I, well, I've told people I, I would not vote for Hillary Clinton because um, that would be to vote for people who would cause, cause this criminal injustice system that's in the new slavery, as you're saying, within the prison system where our workers are actually uh, working for private sector industries and companies, uh, uh, everything from women's retail to God knows what else, else yeah. computers and whatever else, working for free. But as we look at this, the election that has just come up with the return to old South values, uh, really U.S. values, but since the North was north of the South, uh, he could tell it as if the South was different than the North. But, you know, when we came North with the Civil Rights Movement in 64, 65, we found a different place. It was the, really the, America's one composite state, and it's all the same madness. But now what is happening is, is that for the first time we get a chance to take a look at the economics of America. We have the emergence of group of groups brought up by Donald Trump, our present president of the United States. Um, but the groups that bring him to power are very right-wing. By right-wing, I mean the old southern racist, the Nazi, and many of the others that have been there in the South for scores of years have now reemerged. But they reemerged at a time when they don't understand that the industrial age is dead. Mm-hmm. And what Trump has promised them was a rebuilding of that which is impossible, a rebuilding of the industrial age. He doesn't talk about opening coal mines, but doesn't say a word about black lung disease. No. Um, so he's talking about reopening that when it is impossible to do, mm. not only because the businesses have gone to Asia, 
at least out of this country, many of them to South and Central America, under the NAFTA agreement, but also because uh, it's just impossible to do. You can't t- take a people who have not been educated, and they had 12, 12 years of education. They were making fantastic sums of money, but on 12 years of education. Mm-hmm. And now that we've entered the age of the cybernetic age is alive and well and growing and grows by leaps and bounds daily, you would have to re-educate an entire population of people yeah. to be able to deal with the new technology. Right. And that is what we are faced with. And so Trump said he was taking them back to yesterday, the good old days. I don't know. I was back there then. I'm with moms and babies, a comedian. <laughs> I was there then. I don't remember nothing good about it. Nothing but, good um, about the good old days. Slave no, labor. <laughs> yeah. That you were working uh, in this uh, fairytale land. Yep. And it lasted from 45 forward, and now it's over. I mean, yep. it's simply over. And either we will talk about America and Dr. King's word, redefining our values, beginning with the value for work, or we can hang this piece up because it just will not go forward. You can't go forward with, with, with unreality. Right. Plus, we are making war with all of our neighbors when we look at America. We're making war with, with, with all of our neighbors after having made, through NAFTA, made a friendship with Canada, which is quite unusual, too, by the way, America's relationship to Canada. I've been trying to figure that one out <laughs> in terms of our economic relationship to Canada. In terms well, it's of pretty what, simple. We're the resource base. We ship all the stuff south, <laughs> including the ah, jobs. Ah, okay, all right. <laughs> all the oil, all the water. <laughs> Anything's for sale, including our everything, oh, you know. Oh that's, my God. that's our role. So, yeah, we need to look at that role because as we talk about the new America that's emerging here, we have to see that in light of Central America and Canada at all times. Yeah. We can see that the war is on Central America right now. And meanwhile, Central America is having its own complications with the Dominicans killing the Haitians, with Mexico sending anything that it can find black to Haiti, or at least trying to push it out of the country. All of these variables have to be taken place because everything is like, I don't know, it's like a, a whirlwind. It's swirling around and around. But right in the center of that is this big empire. This well, you know what, Coley, you know what you remind me of all the time? You know, if you if people watch the TV too much, they might think that, well, it's the, it's the important people that make history, you know, like the presidents and the prime ministers and the queens and kings, but that's not true. It's people like you who've made history on the ground, and that's why I want to give you a voice to talk about this stuff, because it's how we learn our real history. Well, listen, we need to talk about that together along with Katie and others, because... We are that people. We are all that. All of us yep. who have been out here organizing the lifetime yep. to try to make the kind of real change that's needed in the world. I was in India, and for the first time I understood really how small the world was. Yep. That I was sitting in Mumbai, India, and I could not figure out much difference between Mumbai and Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, New York, for that matter. Yeah. Um, it's a very small world that we live in, made small. Yep by this great imperial powers who have traveled across the world murdering their people yep. for one purpose, and that is the creation of capital and control of land. Yep. It's just um, mind-boggling. But America is changing, and it's going to continue to change because we also see a fight back here, a yep. fierce fight back against the emergence of um, this old this old. Imperialism. <laughs> yeah. The other way yeah. to put Trump's yeah. uh, work, other than old imperialism, we see the reemergence of this. When we see a powerful fight back, 
The buyback is kind of a confused buyback because a lot of folk are just fighting back because they want to put Clinton in power. They did not understand Clinton. They didn't see her as murdering up half of the air bull there. Um, so they see that they thought they were losing something when really, in one sense, we might have gained something because now we have room in which to create clarity uh, now that Trump's in power. Coley, we've got only about two or three minutes left, but let me ask you if you have any websites, anything you want to announce, and I want you back next week because I want to talk to you a lot more about all this stuff. Yeah, we want to talk about Judicial Violence Symposium. Go to the judicialviolencesymposium.com, judicialviolencesymposium.com. Yep. Anybody wants to send us notes, can send it to the judicialviolencesymposium at gmail.com. And there's a Guadalupe Haiti tour committee that I work, work on and will continue to work on in terms of the work in the Caribbean. The Guadalupe Haiti tour committee. And you can get that by just doing G Haiti, G Haiti at gmail.com. We don't have a website. G Haiti okay. at gmail.com. Right. I just want to, you know, be in touch. You can call me at 646 657 7207. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, send it to my my email. I got a ton of them, but just send it to coleyclock at gmail.com. Got it. Sister, I love you. I'm glad you were on. Will you come back next week? I'm waiting. Though. I can't wait to get back. <laughs> I can't wait to see and hear my sister. Yep. And Don, thank you for hooking me up. Yeah, and thank you, sister. We will talk to you next week, same time. All right, darling. Love you. Right. Love you. Love you, Canada. Love you, too. Talk to you Bye-bye. soon. And that was Sister Coley Clark from New York City, and like all of us, makers of history. We'll be back next week to talk to Colleen Moore. Follow us in the meantime at itccs.org, and look at the notices there about our new common law program starting in America and England. The fight has just begun, brothers and sisters. You hang in there, stay strong, and stay clear. We're leaving with another inspirational message from our gospel singers. Thank you. See you next week. Bye for now.